Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 65. In New York City, in an apartment a few streets away from the center of Harlem, Above trees reaching out over sidewalks and dogs pulling at leashes and conversations cut short to avoid parking tickets, a group of professional thinkers once gathered and completed equations that would both snuff and spare several hundred thousand human lives. People walking by the apartment at the time had no idea that four stories above them some of the most important work in applied mathematics was tilting the scales of a global conflict as secret agents of the United States Armed Forces, arithmetical soldiers engaged in statistical combat. Nor could people today know as they open umbrellas and twist heels on cigarettes that nearby, in an apartment overlooking Morningside Heights, One of those soldiers once effortlessly prevented the United States military from doing something incredibly stupid, something that could have changed the flags now flying in capitals around the world had he not caught it, something you do every day. These masters of math moved their families across the country, some across an ocean, so they could work together. As they unpacked, The theaters in their new hometowns replaced posters for Citizen Kane with those for Casablanca, and the newspapers they unwrapped from photo frames and plates featured stories still unraveling the events at Pearl Harbor. Many still held positions at universities. Others left those sorts of jobs to think deeply in one of the many groups that worked for the armed forces, free of any other obligations aside from checking in on their families at night and feeding their brains during the day all paused their careers and rushed to enlist so they could help crush Hitler, not with guns and brawn, but with integers and exponents. The official name for the people inside the apartment was the Statistical Research Group, a cabal of geniuses assembled at the request of the White House and made up of people who would go on to compete for and win Nobel Prizes. 
The SRG was an extension of Columbia University, and they dealt mainly with statistical analysis. The Philadelphia Computing Section, made up entirely of women mathematicians, worked six days a week at the University of Pennsylvania on ballistics tables. Other groups with different specialties were tied to Harvard, Princeton, Brown, and others, 11 in all, each a leaf at the end of a new branch of the government created to help defeat the Axis. The Department of War Math. Actually, no. They were never officially known by such a deliciously sexy title. They were instead called the Applied Mathematics Panel. But they operated as if they were a Department of War Math. So the department, the panel, was created because the United States needed help. A surge of new technology had flooded into daily life, and the same wonders that years earlier drove ticket sales to the World's Fair, were now cracking open cities. Numbers and variables now massed into scenarios far too complex to solve with maps and binoculars. The military realized it faced problems that no soldier had ever confronted. No best practices yet existed for things like rockets and radar stations and aircraft carriers. The most advanced computational devices available were clunky experiments made of telephone switches or vacuum tubes. A calculator still looked like the mutant child of an old-fashioned cash register and a mechanical typewriter. If you wanted solutions to the newly unfathomable problems of modern combat, you needed powerful number crunchers. And in 1941, the world's most powerful number crunchers ran on toast and coffee. Here's how it worked. Somewhere inside the vast machinery of war, a commander would stumble into a problem. That commander would then send a request to the head of the panel who would then assign the task to the group he thought would best be able to resolve the issue. Scientists in that group would then travel to Washington and meet with the top military personnel and advisors and explain to them how they might go about solving the problem. It was like calling technical support, except you called a computational genius who then invented a new way of understanding the world through math and an effort to win a global conflict for control of the planet. For instance, the Navy desperately needed to know what was the best possible pattern or spread of torpedoes to launch against large enemy ships. All they had to go on were a series of hastily taken blurry black and white photographs of turning Japanese war vessels. The panel handed over the photos to one of its meat-based mainframes and asked it to report back when it had a solution. The warrior mathematicians solved the problem almost as soon as they saw it. Lord Kelvin, they told the Navy, had already worked out the calculations in 1887. Just look at the patterns in the waves, they explained. See how they fan out in curves like an unfurling fern? The spaces tell you everything. They give it all away. Work out the distance between the cusps of the bow waves, and you'll know how fast the ship is going. Lord Kelvin hadn't worked out what to do if the ship was turning, but no problem, they said. The mathematicians scribbled on notepads and clapped on blackboards until they had both advanced the field and created a solution. They then measured wavelets on real ships and saw their math was sound. The Navy added a new weapon to its arsenal, the ability to accurately send a barrage of torpedoes into a turning ship based only on what you could divine from the patterns in the waves. 
The devotion of the mathematical soldiers grew stronger as the war grew bloodier, and they learned the things they etched on hidden blackboards and jotted on guarded scraps of paper determined who would and would not return home to their families once the war was over. Leading brains in every scientific discipline had eagerly joined the fight, and although textbooks would eventually devote chapters to the work of the codebreakers and the creators of the atomic bomb, there were many groups whose stories never made headlines, those who produced nothing more than weaponized equations. One story in particular was nearly lost forever. In it, a brilliant statistician named Abraham Wald saved countless lives by preventing a group of military commanders from committing a common human error, a mistake that you probably make every single day. Colleagues describe Wald as gentle and kind, as a genius unsurpassed in his areas of expertise. His contributions, said one peer, had, quote, produced a decisive turn in method and purpose, end quote, in the social sciences. Born in Hungary in 1902, the son of a Jewish baker, Wald spent his childhood studying equations, eventually working his way up through academia to become a graduate student at the University of Vienna, mentored by the great mathematician Karl Minger. Wald was the sort of a student who offered suggestions on how to improve the books he was reading and then saw to it that those suggestions were incorporated into later editions. His mentor would introduce Wald to problems that made experts in the field rub their beards, the sort of things with names like stochastic difference equations and the betweenness among the ternary relations in metric space. Wald would not only return within a month or so with a solution to such a problem, but politely ask for another to solve. As he advanced the science of probability and statistics, his name became familiar to mathematicians in the United States, where he eventually fled in 1938, reluctantly, as the Nazi threat grew. His family, all but a single brother, would later die in the extermination camp known as Auschwitz. After Wald arrived in the United States, he joined the Applied Mathematics panel and went to work with the team at Columbia, stuffed in the secret apartment. His group looked for patterns and applied statistics to problems and situations too large and unwieldy for commanders to get their arms around. They turned the geometry of air combat into graphs and charts, and they plotted the success rates of bomb sites and various tactics. As the war progressed, their efforts became focused on the most pressing problem of the war, keeping airplanes in the sky. In some years of World War II, the chances of a member of a bomber crew making it through a tour of duty was about the same as calling heads in a coin toss and winning. As a member of a World War II bomber crew, you flew for hours above an entire nation hoping to murder you while suspended in the air, huge, visible from far away, and vulnerable from every direction above and below as bullets and flak streamed out to puncture you. Ghosts already, that's how historian Kevin Wilson described World War II airmen. They expected to die, 
because it always felt like the chances of surviving the next bombing run were about the same as running shirtless across a football field, swarming with angry hornets and making it unharmed to the other side. You might make it across once, but what if you kept running back and forth? Eventually your luck would run out. Any advantage the mathematicians could provide, even a very small one, would make a big difference day after day, mission after mission. As with the torpedo problem, the top brass explained what they knew and the panel presented the problem to Wald and his group. How, the Army Air Force asked, could they improve the odds of a bomber making it home? Military engineers explained to the statistician that they already knew the Allied bombers needed more armor, but the ground crews couldn't just cover the planes like tanks, not if they wanted them to take off. The operational commanders asked for help figuring out the best places to add what little protection they could. It was here that Wald prevented the military from falling prey to survivorship bias, an error in perception that could have turned the tide of a war if left unnoticed and uncorrected. See if you can spot it. So, the military looked at the bombers that had returned from enemy territory, and they recorded where those planes had taken the most damage. Over and over again, they saw that the bullet holes tended to accumulate along the wings, around the tail gunner, and down the center of the body. Wings, body, tail gunner. Considering this information, where would you put the extra armor? Naturally, the commanders wanted to put the thicker protection where they could clearly see the most damage, where the holes clustered. But Wald said, no, that would be precisely the wrong decision. Putting the armor there wouldn't improve their chances at all. Do you understand why it was a foolish idea to do it that way? The mistake, which Wald saw instantly, was that the holes showed where the planes were strongest. The holes showed where a bomber could be shot and still survive the flight home. After all, here they were, holes and all. It was the planes that weren't there that needed extra protection, and they had needed it in places that these planes had not. The holes in the surviving planes actually reveal the locations that needed the least additional armor. Look at where the survivors are unharmed, he said, and that's where these bombers are most vulnerable. That's where the planes that didn't make it back were hit. Taking survivorship bias into account, Wald went ahead and worked out how much damage each individual part of an airplane could take before it was destroyed. Engine, ailerons, pilot, stabilizers. And then, through a tangle of complicated equations, he showed the commanders how likely it was that the average plane would get shot in those places in any given bombing run, depending on the amount of resistance it faced. Those calculations are still in use today. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. (music) 
I am a huge fan of the great courses. I'm learning about so many subjects that fascinate me in science and psychology and philosophy and neuroscience and management. Oh my God, there's so many things you can learn from the great courses. You get this credible in-depth knowledge from top professors who are passionate about what they are presenting. And what I love about the great courses is that you can find something about anything. And it's not just some YouTube videos. It's not just some stuff someone threw together. It is well-produced, vetted, and it comes with a booklet that you can use to learn along with whatever it is you're using to get that information in your head. Is it a smartphone? Is it a computer? Is it your car's stereo? Is it a television? Whatever works best for you, they have a way for it to get into your brain. And you've got to check out The Great Courses, Behavioral Economics, When Psychology and Economics Collide by Scott Hutel, Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. I love this course. I've listened to it twice now, uh, both on really long road trips. And I really, really like the way that he slowly builds up what is behavioral economics and then starts blowing your mind with specific details that I've never, ever considered. I thought I understood what it was, but he starts going into things that I thought I would need math to understand. But I don't because it's all about decision making, what drives your choices, how you make unconscious and conscious choices. And he gives you all these tools to make better, more informed decisions, both personally and professionally. And of course, there's all this counterintuitive stuff that you can tell people at parties that will blow them away, like how you can offer people money and it will disincentivize their behavior or how Whenever someone wins a gold medal, that's great. But the person who wins the bronze medal is happier than the person who wins the silver. And there's a very clear scientific reason why. So The Great Courses has all this stuff, 500 different subjects. Get them on DVDs, digital streaming, downloads, whatever, even on apps. And I can't speak highly enough about them. I'm giving my listeners, because they're offering this and it's such a cool gift, this great offer that will go away soon. Get eight of their best-selling courses, including this one, Behavioral Economics, at 80% off of the original price, eight, zero. It is a great, 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 great deal, and this offer is available for a limited time only. So order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That is, once again, thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. The military had the best data available at the time, and the stakes could not have been higher. Yet the top commanders still failed to see the flaws in their logic. Those planes would have been armored in vain had it not been for the intervention of a man trained to spot human error. A question should be forming in the front of your brain at this point. If the top brass of the United States Armed Forces can make such a simple and dumb mistake while focused on avoiding simple and dumb mistakes, thanks to survivorship bias, does that mean survivorship bias is likely bungling many of your own day-to-day perceptions? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. 
all the time. Simply put, survivorship bias is your tendency to focus on survivors instead of whatever you would call a non-survivor, depending on the situation. Sometimes that means you tend to focus on the living instead of the dead, or on winners instead of losers, or on successes instead of failures. In Wald's problem, the military focused on the planes that made it home and almost made a terrible decision because they ignored the ones that got shot down. It's easy to do. After any process that leaves behind survivors, the non-survivors are often destroyed or muted or removed from your view. And if failures become invisible, then naturally you will pay more attention to successes. Not only do you fail to recognize that what is missing might have held important information, you fail to recognize that there is missing information at all. You must remind yourself that when you start to pick apart winners and losers, successes and failures, the living and the dead, that by paying attention to one side of that equation, you're always neglecting the other. If you're thinking about opening a restaurant because there's so many successful restaurants in your hometown, you are ignoring the fact that only successful restaurants survive to become examples. Maybe on average, 90% of restaurants in your city fail in the first year. You can't see all those failures because when they fail, they also disappear from view. As Nassim Tlaib writes in his book, The Black Swan, the cemetery of failed restaurants is very silent. Of course, the few that don't fail in that deadly of an environment are wildly successful because only the very best and the very lucky can survive. So all you're left with are super successes. And looking at super successes day after day, it can make you think that it's a great business to get into when what you're actually seeing is evidence that you should avoid it. Survivorship bias pulls you toward best-selling diet gurus, celebrity CEOs, and superstar athletes. It's an unavoidable tick, the desire to deconstruct success like a thieving magpie and pull away the shimmering bits. You look to the successful for clues about the hidden, about how to better live your life, about how you too can survive similar forces against which you too struggle. Colleges and conferences prefer speakers who shine as examples of making it through adversity, of struggling against the odds and winning. The problem here is that you rarely take away from these inspirational figures advice on what not to do, on what you should avoid, and that's because they don't know. Information like that is lost along with the people who don't make it out of bad situations or who don't make it on the cover of business magazines, people who don't get invited to speak at graduations and commencements and inaugurations, the actors who travel from Louisiana to Los Angeles only to return to Louisiana after a few years don't get to sit next to James Lipton and watch clips of their Oscar-winning performances as students eagerly gobble up their crumbs of wisdom. In short, the advice business is a monopoly run by survivors. As the psychologist Daniel Kahneman writes in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, a stupid decision that works out well becomes a brilliant decision in hindsight. So the things a great company like Microsoft or Google or Apple, whatever they did right, that's like the planes with the bullet holes in the wings. The companies that burned all the way to the ground after taking massive damage, they fade from memory. 
So before you emulate the history of a famous company, Kahneman, his advice is that you should imagine going back in, in time when that company was just getting by and ask yourself if the outcome of its decisions were in any way predictable. If not, you're probably just seeing patterns in hindsight where there was only chaos in the moment. He sums it up like this, quote, if you group successes together and look for what makes them similar, the only real answer will be luck, end quote. So if you see your struggle this way as partly a game of chance, then as Google engineer Barnaby James writes in his blog, quote, skill will allow you to place more bets on the table, but it's not a guarantee of success, end quote. So thus he warns, quote, beware advice from the successful. Entrepreneur Jason Cohen, in, in writing about survivorship bias, he pointed out that since we can't go back in time and start 20 identical Starbucks across the planet, we can never know if that business model is actually the source of the chain's immense popularity or if something completely random and out of the control of the decision makers led to a Starbucks on just about every street corner in North America. So that means you should be skeptical of any book promising you the secrets to winning at the game of life through some particular example. See, if you spend your life only learning from survivors, buying books about successful people and pouring over the history of companies that shook the planet, your knowledge of the world will be strongly biased and enormously incomplete. It's um, one of my, the best examples of this I love. It comes from Mike Johnston at The Online Photographer, and he wrote over at that blog, uh, quote, I have to chuckle whenever I read yet another description of American frontier log cabins as being well-crafted or sturdily or beautifully built. The much more likely truth is that 99% of frontier log cabins were horribly built. It's just that all those fell down. The few that have survived intact were the ones that were well-made, but that does not mean all of them were. So you take all this together, and the best I can tell is, here's the trick. When you're looking for advice, you should look for what not to do, for what is missing. But do not expect to find that among the quotes and biographical records of people whose signals rose above the noise. They may have no clue how or if they lucked up. What you can't see, and what they can't see, is that the successful tend to make it more probable that unlikely events will happen to them while trying to steer themselves into the positive side of randomness. They stick with it, remaining open to better opportunities that may require abandoning their current paths. And that's something you can start doing right now without reading a single self-help proverb, maxim, or aphorism. Also, keep in mind that those who fail rarely get paid for advice on how not to fail, which is too bad because despite how it may seem, success boils down to serially avoiding catastrophic failure while routinely absorbing manageable damage. Before we finish this story about survivorship bias, I would like to mention Wald one more time. Like many of the others who joined the armed services to fight Hitler with numbers, Abraham Wald went down in history, but not for the bombers and bullet holes story. He is best remembered as the inventor of sequential analysis, another achievement he earned while working in the Department of War Math. 
He married Lucille Land in 1941. Two years later, they had their first child, Betty, followed four years later by another they named Robert. And three years after that, at the top of his career and enjoying an exotic speaking tour, after saving the lives of thousands of people he would never meet, he and Lucille died in an airplane that crashed against the side of the Nilgiri Mountains in India. Perhaps there's an irony to that. Something about airplanes and odds and chance and luck. But it isn't the interesting part of Wald's story. His contributions to science are what survives his time on Earth. And also, they are the parts of his tale that will endure. In 1968, the National Academy of Sciences issued a report saying the application of mathematics in World War II, quote, became recognized as an art. And the lessons learned by the mathematicians were later applied to business, science, industry, and management. And they saved the world, and then they rebuilt it using the same tools each time, calculators and chalk. In 1978, Alan Wallace, director of the SRG, said of his team, this was surely the most extraordinary group of statisticians ever organized. The bomber problem was just a side story for them, a funny anecdote that only surfaced in the 1980s as they all began to reminisce full time. When you think about how fascinating that story is, it makes you wonder about all the stories we'll never hear about all those numerical soldiers because they never made it out of the war and into a journal or magazine or a book. And that's true of so much that's important in life. All we know of the past passes through a million, million filters, and a great deal is never recorded or is tossed aside to make room for something more interesting or beautiful or audacious. All we will learn from history reaches us from the stories that, for whatever reason, survived. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. If you would like more great podcasts like this one, head to boingboing.net. If you would like to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast, go to youarenotsosmart.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all those places. Most of the music in this episode was performed by Drew Garraway, but this music you're listening to now, that is Banjo Apocalypse. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This, of course, was a rebroadcast of the Survivorship Bias episode from a while back. But there will be new stuff soon. uh, Episodes about logical fallacies. Episodes about the backfire effect. But I'm on the road right now, going from state to state and country to country, getting stuff that will go into my new book. But new episodes are on the way. And uh, I cannot wait to share it with you. See you soon.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.